All right, well, um, I will start off, and this is just a quick note, kind of sort of part of the message, sort of not. I know that things are very much getting back into uh, a place of uh, just with, with COVID and uh, the conversations around vaccines and masks and the ongoing frustration that the world is experiencing. Uh, sort of felt like we had a nice pause from that at a, at a point in the last couple of months, and now it seems to be ramping back up. And I know for a lot of you, just in conversations that we've had, it's coming with um, maybe another round of anxiety, another round of discouragement. I just wanted to, I wanted to start today by uh, blessing you and challenging you that in the midst of difficult days in the world that we're in, uh, to be people of Jesus. Even if it feels like the world is crumbling around us, there's something so secure about having our feet centered on Jesus to know that we know that we know that God is good and real and present and true and walking us through every day with full wisdom and full discernment and full grace for today. So if you find yourself discouraged, if you find yourself frustrated, if you find yourself anxious, I just want to press you more than ever back into the person of Jesus to find your way forward in these days and weeks and months as stuff just keeps rolling on. So that's my encouragement and, uh, and even my, my blessing to you. And I'll just, I'll just pray this over you guys. Lord, would we be a people that shine boldly in a dark world, that carry your goodness, your hope, and your peace to people that need it desperately. So Lord, train us, equip us, establish us, and help us to be your people and to do uh, on this earth, Jesus, the very things that you came and established for us to do. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen. All right, so our text for today is John chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 31 through 38. Just seven verses. 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. Eight verses. Just eight verses that are going to help, I think, reset for a lot of us the nature of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the, the big question at hand that Jesus is going to be delivering. And we're going to focus on four key words in these eight verses. We're going to look at believe, abide, truth, and free. Those are the four words as we read through this text. Those are the four words that we're going to try and understand what it is that Jesus is teaching us and what he's trying to call us into. Those words again are believe, abide, truth, and free. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 8. I'm going to read through these verses and then we'll spend some time walking through these things. This is verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. All right, the very first thing we need to talk through is this idea of what it means to believe. Jesus, or I'm sorry, John starts off this section by saying, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, this is a teaching to, let's just say there's a big crowd and there's a certain group of people that have said, okay, I'm starting to see that you're the Messiah, I'm in. Jesus turns to that group of people. So not the people that are actively antagonistic, but people that are starting to warm towards his message. We know from the previous section, verse 30, John says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there's something starting to take shape that John identifies as belief. But what we'll see is that Jesus is not satisfied just yet. And this is kind of an interesting thing, because last week I talked about this, that if you believe, then the key to eternity is there. Your faith is established. All of those kinds of things that all we have to do is believe and we will be saved. And, and the reality of the scriptures is yes, but Jesus isn't just trying to get us into heaven. He's actually working to develop something deeper in us than an extremely basic and surface-level belief. He wants more than that. Now, if you were trying to say, what's the bare minimum for me to get into heaven? Jesus would come to you and say, well, uh, let's talk about that, because that's the wrong question. That's never been what Jesus is interested in, is what is the bare minimum to get you into heaven? He actually wants life for you. He wants more for you than that. And that's evidenced by this, because we have a group of people that believe, and then he turns to them and he says, all right, now let's talk about what it means to be a true disciple. Let's talk about what it means to actually go beyond just that initial belief. And to understand this a little bit, I want to take you to a parable that's in the book of Matthew to try and understand why Jesus would want to go beyond initial belief and why it's so important for him. And this would also be important for you to understand. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable it's called the parable of the sower. A sower goes out and he throws seed and that seed lands in four different places. So if you, it might just be worth turning over there. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 13. And let's go ahead and take a look at this. I'm going to go through it somewhat quickly. So I gave you the preamble. A sower went out to sow, starting in verse 4. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Let him, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus goes on to explain that Starting in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so the gospel, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So the birds that came and ate the seeds, Jesus is saying, that's the enemy. He will come and he'll actually pluck the word of the gospel out of your heart, out of your mind. As you're hearing the gospel, the enemy is actively trying to keep it from taking root in you. 
Jesus is saying this. This is what happens. As the gospel goes out, the enemy is actively out there trying to keep that from taking root. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So there are people that will receive the gospel and very quickly they'll believe it, but if it gets difficult, it's maybe the first thing to go. I don't know that that's what I want to bank my life on. This might be a large number of people that we're talking about in John, people that believed quickly that Jesus was the Messiah, but when he gets arrested or when the Pharisees say, we don't think this is the Messiah, we're going to go ahead and kill him, or whatever the, the storyline is, they turn their back on Jesus. They, they fall away or even become the people that are shouting, crucify him. And so there's kind of like an endurance component that Jesus is talking about. Sometimes we believe quickly, but there's no root to that belief. It just doesn't, it doesn't stick at all. Okay, the next one. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As the gospel starts to take root and grow in our life, there are competing values for the gospel. You might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and start to live accordingly and grow in your faith, but there are other things that are also competing for your passion, your attention, your affection, the things of this world, and it chokes out the gospel in your life. And Jesus is identifying this and saying there are a lot of people who will try to walk on the path of righteousness and they'll find themselves smothered by the other things that the world has to offer. As for what was sown on good soil... Listen to this, super important. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields a hundredfold, 60 and 30. So back to John chapter 8. John describes these people that believe, and then Jesus turns to them and he talks to them about true discipleship. And essentially, Jesus is now training us to be good soil, to, to follow the parable of the sower into John chapter 8, Jesus is training these people, here's how to prepare yourself for the word of God to take root. Here's how to be a disciple where the message of the kingdom lands, takes root, grows, and produces fruit. So if you're here and you're thinking, okay, this is, that's what I would want to be. I would want to be good soil. If I'm following the parable of the sower, I don't want any of those. I want to be good soil. Then this is a how-to. Jesus is being very helpful in presenting to you how to pursue life as a true disciple is the terminology he uses. So he turns to them and he says, and this is abide. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So now we're going to talk about what it means to abide. The call to abide is going to become a theme that will carry us through John chapter 15. Uh, when we hit John 15, we'll actually take about a month to go through that particular passage because it has that level of importance for us in understanding our discipleship to Jesus. Abiding in Christ becomes a mega theme, a mega theme throughout the rest of the New Testament. Because it encapsulates what it means to be a disciple, to be with Jesus, to live with him, to remain with him, to walk with him, to go with Jesus in your life. That's why we talk so often about this not being a religion. 
It's not just a show up, do the nine things that you're supposed to do, and you magically end up in heaven. This is something where Jesus is inviting us into an abiding relationship. And that concept of abiding, it has to do with living every day in Jesus. So Jesus says this way. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus' word? This is so important for us to grab a hold of. It's a concept that's taught throughout the scriptures. Psalm 1 talks about meditating on his word day and night. Colossians chapter 3 talks about letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, the word of Christ dwelling richly in you. 1 John 2 says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You can see the scriptures teach us that believing in Jesus and being a true disciple is directly connected to letting the word of God and the way of Jesus function as the authoritative doctrine for faithful living. That is a sentence and a mouthful. What that means is that when we believe in Jesus, Jesus then invites us to allow his word his message, his gospel become the authoritative way of life. That you are now saying, no longer are you saying, I'm going to do my life the way that I want to do my life. You're actually saying, okay, I'm laying aside my desire and I'm assuming the desire of God and his word in my life. I want that to dictate where I go, what I do, how I speak, how I live. And Jesus says, this is a true discipleship relationship, is when you abide in my word, when you take my word and let it rule your life. Now, that terminology might be kind of hard for us because we like to be free-thinking people that do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and if it happens to align with the scriptures, that's a win-win. But that's, that's not the way of Jesus. In fact, he's going to go on to talk about, and other places will go on to talk about that, that our will, our desire is fleshly and worldly and will lead us to destruction. The way of Jesus will lead us to life. And he's inviting us, even visioning us on walking in the way of Jesus so that we can truly experience all that God has for us, the good and right and powerful and joyful things that are in the gospel, they come through abiding in his word, remaining in his word, letting it rule your life. So this is like a, a voluntary submission thing. Hey, if you really want this, if you see that I'm the Messiah and you truly want to walk with me, abide in my word. Now, Jesus starts to sell us on it a little bit, to vision us on what happens if we abide in his word. This is the next phrase. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
So Jesus often uses a device called a conditional promise to, to help us understand that we have a participatory role in our discipleship. A, a conditional promise says, if you, then this. That's the idea. So if you do something, then there's a, a result or an outflow of your participation. This would be, and this is going to sound kind of strange, this is why different Christians would have varying experiences in their relationship to Jesus because different people obey Jesus differently. Now, I would love to say that it's a choose-your-own-adventure, but, but ultimately what Jesus is saying is there is a way to walk with me and then there's ways to experience less and less and less of all that I have for you when you walk in your own way. So this conditional promise says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. Now, this is a really important phrase, and it's important for us to, to walk through this because this phrase has been thrown around a lot, makes its way into movies. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free is something that, that just kind of, it's a phrase that just gets thrown out there often, and this becomes critical for us to understand what is Jesus talking about when he says the truth. Jesus has a very specific truth in mind when he says, then you will know the truth. So here's the sequence. If you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, if my word is the authority in your life, if you're obeying what I tell you, then you will know the truth. You will know what is true in this life. Again, this is Jesus giving you a path. He's trying to help us be disciples to him. And the way to know the truth is by obeying his word. And when we obey his word, we actually know the truth. So what is the truth that Jesus is talking about? He's been building up to this throughout all of the chapters of the book of John. He said, I am the bread of life. Does anyone thirst? Let him come to me and drink. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. And a passage that we've not yet gotten to, John 14, 6, Jesus will culminate this idea by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. The truth that Jesus is referring to is him. If you abide in my word, that's when you truly know me. That's when you truly know the Father. That's when you truly know the plan of God. That's when you truly know what is happening in this world as God is working to redeem it to himself is when you know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, well, then you get to experience true freedom. Then you get to experience the kind of freedom that is available to a follower of Jesus, to the people of God, and it's different than what we might expect. So let's talk through this for just a minute. Jesus offers to know the truth, and if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now, freedom is a trigger word for Jews. 
I know we know trigger words in our day and age, and there's a lot of them. There are a lot of things that will set people off, and freedom even today is one of those that if you mention it, people instantly start to perk up and wonder where you're going in your discussion about freedom, and that was true in this day as well. Jesus says that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and the Jews instantly respond to that phrase. And this is their response to Jesus. And this helps us understand the kind of freedom that Jesus is offering. They answered, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved for anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Okay, a couple of things that are just helpful to understand. First of all, Jesus in no way is talking about political freedom. He's not talking about the oppression of Rome. He's not talking about any of those things. And the reality is the Jews don't even think he's talking about that. They don't think that he's talking about some kind of personal liberty or personal freedom in any of those contexts at all right now. They listen to him and they say, okay, time out. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And if you know the story of Israel, then you would think you've been enslaved to Egypt, you've been enslaved to Babylon, you've been enslaved to Persia, you've been enslaved to Greece, and now you are currently enslaved to Rome. You are an occupied nation that has no autonomy. You are not free in a political sense, yet here they are saying we've never been enslaved to anyone. So they know that Jesus isn't talking about the state of the state at all. He's talking about something deeper than that, and they still are struggling with it. So what the Jews are referencing in this moment has to do more with a metaphysical freedom, a spiritual freedom. The, the inner person that is truly free, and they're looking at it and saying, well, we are the people of Abraham, and so we have already been set free. We have a relationship with God. We have already been set free. And so you might look at that and think, well, they're right. If they're the people of God, then they've already been set free. So what's the problem? Why is Jesus offering them freedom? And here's the reality of the struggle that they're in. What God originally offered to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and on through the prophets, Israel continually struggled with receiving the covenant promise and living in it. But in Jesus' day, it had gotten so distant from that relationship to God that freedom wasn't because they were following God anymore. Now freedom was a birthright to Israel. In their thinking, internal autonomy Personal freedom was a birthright to Israel. We are free spiritually because Abraham. And Jesus has a different opinion than that. He sees a different kind of way, a different kind of problem. I'm saying this very slowly and very carefully because the reality of the current modern-day American is that a lot of us would have a similar picture of freedom, internal autonomous freedom being a birthright because America. And that's not the kind of freedom that Jesus is talking about. And he has a message to 
every person that would think freedom is a birthright, he says, there's something more to the story than that. So look at what he says to the Jews. And remember, these are the people that have believed in him, and he's challenging their belief. Jesus isn't content just for them to be like, okay, we think you're the Messiah. He wants to actually run that thing through the meat grinder, test it by fire. He wants to see that belief be deepened and strengthened and made more profound by people abiding in his word. So he keeps teaching them hard things. And this is what he says to them. And this is why we know that what Jesus is talking about is a different kind of freedom. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, this phrase, slave to sin, will become a launching point for massive amounts of teaching throughout the New Testament. And this is critical for us to understand as a building block to being disciples of Jesus. What is our relationship to sin? Jesus says, if you abide in my word, You'll truly be disciples. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. They say, hey, we're already free. He says, actually, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, there might be part of you that just instantly grips a little bit. Where's Matt going to go with this? What is my relationship to sin as a follower of Jesus? And what does it mean to be set free? If the Son has set me free and I'm free indeed, yet I still struggle with sin, what's, what's the connection? And so this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. There are two passages. I'm going to have you write them down, and we're also going to go to them. There are two passages that are commentary on Jesus' teaching. Romans chapter 6, and the reality is it's Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, but that would take a really long time to teach all three chapters. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6 and 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2 on in, we'll see how far we get. And these two passages are commentary on this concept, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, but the son, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So let's talk about this in terms of our relationship to Jesus and being slaves to sin. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 5. Now my goal for this, honestly, is to be helpful. Because a lot of us struggle with sinful behaviors, with practicing sin, and we don't know what that does to our life with Jesus. We don't know how to respond or where we stand, and we can get kind of discouraged and, and even try and figure out, okay, what does this mean? And my hope for today is to be as helpful as possible in understanding a believer's relationship to Jesus and sin and what it all means. So Romans chapter 6, Paul's writing, he says this, for if we have been, this is verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's that phrase. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Okay, so let's start by talking about our relationship to sin. There's the- theological and practical. Theologically, if you give your life to Jesus and you start to walk with him, what, what happens in you is the great exchange that we talked about last week. If you remember the blue rhino propane tank, that great exchange, you have taken your sin and given it to God and God has given you the righteousness of Jesus. So when he looks at you, and this is theologically speaking, when God looks at you as a follower of Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the seal of the Holy Spirit. You are the holy of holies, the residing place of the presence of God. You are a temple of the most high God. Those are all things that are said about you. So that's that's our theological reality. That's why if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can see the amount of scriptures that are trying to help us understand that something dramatic and permanent has shifted in us when the blood of Christ is applied to our lives. And so now Paul's trying to help us understand this. And he says, okay, let's let's wrestle with this a little bit. Let's play this out. So if we've been set free from sin, what does that do? What does that mean for our relationship to sin? And he's saying, look, if Jesus died to sin and you died with him, and that's what it means to give your life to Christ, you died with Jesus. You've been raised to walk in the newness of life. Now he's saying, now live like it. Now live the freedom that Jesus died to give you. And here's how he's going to explain that. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. So if it's theologically true, here's where you start to participate. You receive the word of God, you abide in his word, and you, you take on the truth of the gospel, which is, I am dead to sin. Sin is not the authority in my life anymore Jesus is the authority in my life now. I abide in his word. His blood has applied to me. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I'm ruled by Christ. Now, Paul will challenge you again with your participation. Because even though theologically we've been set free, there's still this freedom to choose. And every one of us has experienced this. I'm a follower of Jesus, yet I have this bitterness in my heart. I'm a follower of Jesus, yet I have this lust in me. I'm a follower of Jesus, yet there's this greed that drives me to do the things that I do. And these things are clashing. Jesus, help me to get rid of this sin. I hope I'm not the only one with that experience. I'm assuming that that goes beyond me. And so we as Christians, we long to be righteous and live our righteousness, all the things that are true about us, yet sometimes it's met with 
the disappointing reality of our own struggle. And we find ourselves struggling to move forward. So here's what Paul challenges you to do. He puts this in your hands. You have the Spirit of God. You have the Word of God. You carry the presence of God. This is only instruction for people that are followers of Jesus that now have the power and the freedom that Jesus promises. Here's what he challenges you to do. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul actually gives you authority over sin. And I, I say Paul gives you. Paul explains that you have it. Hey, let not sin Therefore, reign in your mortal body. You've been set free from it. It doesn't have to have that place because you're not a slave to it. And so now, as a participant in the process, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Next thing. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Okay, your mind, your body, your mouth. These are your members that we can present to sin and say, yeah, go to town. Or, according to Paul, we cannot. So he says, don't present your members to sin to be slaves of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So again, this is the theological and the practical working together. You are not under the dominion of sin. And, and the message of Jesus, the message of Paul, and we'll get to John in just a minute. The message of John is you are not a slave to sin. You have been set free. Now, there are piles of things that we struggle with. And we'll talk about that as we get to the book of 1 John. But you need to hear the message of the gospel has released you from bondage to sin. Jesus says that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So now let's talk about that freedom as John takes it and understands it and puts it into practice. So this is 1 John chapter 1. Turn over here. We're going to start in verse 5. And we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 6. This is the same John that wrote the gospel and is writing 1 John. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Guys, I heard Jesus teach this stuff, and now I'm trying to deliver it to everybody that I can. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, so at a base level, at a core level, John is saying it's incompatible to say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I walk in the light and then to choose to continue to live in the path of darkness. That's the, I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. I can live however I want and Jesus doesn't care. John is saying that, that's, there's a, a fundamental mix-up in your understanding of the gospel if that's where you're at. That's, that's actually a lie. That's not the way of Jesus. Okay, so he's going to continue. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So I believe that Jesus is Messiah and I'm going to abide in his word. It's going to be the rule 
of life for me. The word of God will dictate how I live my life. I'm going to follow it. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to live it out. It's going to oversee my choices, my worldview, my patterns, my relationships. The word of God will inform how I live this life. Is John talking about walking in the light? Now he says this, if we say we have no sin, here's where it gets to our relationship with sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus will say this to them as well. Oh, you guys say you're offspring of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me. The very activity that you're participating in now is evidence that your heritage, your birthright is irrelevant. You're showing me that your relationship to God does not matter to you as much as killing me does. Those are the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about when he, t- when he says to them, okay, oh, I'll get back to John 8. Sorry, let me keep going on this. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The starting point is to acknowledge I am a sinner, and I am enslaved to sin, and I need help. And so verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in in, in us. So there's the theological and some practical aspects with confessing our sin. But listen to verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, And this is where we get into the the kind of real life grit of being a follower of Jesus. Is it the desire of Jesus that you would walk in righteousness and experience the full life of abiding in him and experiencing his power and his joy and his freedom from all of the brokenness of this world? The answer is a resounding yes. He wants you to be free from sin and all of its broken effects. That is what he came to accomplish. And now he's trying to teach you how to live to the fullest aspect of being free from your sin. And John heard this. This is the message we heard from him and now proclaim to you. I'm writing this so that you will not sin. So if you're going through your life and you're just thinking, okay, should I sin or not sin? Like if you're asking yourself some of those big picture questions as you're going through some of the day-to-day decisions, the heartbeat of God is that you would choose not to sin. And that in the pursuit of righteousness, you would experience the fullness of life and joy and peace that comes from living the way of Jesus. And so John's writing, and he's saying, guys, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. I want to teach you this stuff so that sin is not a part of your life. But if anyone does sin, now he's getting to this place of, I hear you. You want to follow Jesus. You understand what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. But we also fall short. We struggle. We sin. And he says this, if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If there is sin in your life today, the grace of God continues to apply to you today. 
the opportunity for forgiveness. Maybe you said, well, I believed in Jesus. He cleansed me of all my sin, and then I sinned again, and so I've kind of ruined it forever. And John's saying, that's actually, that's not how this works. The grace of God applies to you, and you get to experience the fresh freedom of the gospel of grace every time you sin. Now, Paul will say in Romans 6, 1, a verse that I didn't read, so should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? No. No, 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 no. No. The goal of grace is not to give you license to sin so that you can experience more grace. The goal of grace is to show you life and where it's truly found, and what Jesus will call in John 10.10, life abundant, where you experience purity in your relationships with each other. Imagine a marriage free from sin, where you're not disappointing each other, or frustrating each other, or embittered towards each other, or living in a constant state of tension and anger, because sin has been lifted, and there's peace in the house. Imagine that. Jesus wants that for you. Imagine that with your kids. His desire is that you would have a sin-free relationship with your kids, where you're walking in peace, and righteousness, and goodness, And there's joy and goodness in the household. And you take that and the the effects of the gospel are resounding. When the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. You get to experience a different kind of life when you are in the gospel of grace. John continues, last two verses in 1 John 2, uh, this section. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John brings it back to this place. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, so the belief is there. He's the Messiah. Jesus is God. I'm in. Jesus says, abide in my word, and truly you're my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And and John takes that and says, we we learn from Jesus that this is what it means to follow him, that we take his word and we make it the authoritative rule of life. Again, part of our ethos is to buck against somebody else ruling over us. My encouragement, my admonition, my call is for every single one of us to rejoice that we have a God that has given us a way of life to experience true joy and peace and goodness. You could be frustrated that God is God and you're not, but it doesn't do you any good. And the Bible is full from cover to cover of people that have resisted God's rule in their life. And they find themselves over and over and over and over up against the wall of the world. Just the the world that we are in works against those 
And we see this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. This is the way of the gospel is that when you abide in his word, God is in the midst of that, shaping your life and giving you fullness of joy. So when Jesus teaches, and he says, abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's saying these things to invite you to experience a life in him that is released from the bondage of sin and given the opportunity to walk in righteousness. If you sin, John makes it clear, look, you've got an advocate. Jesus is ongoingly working on the Father, presenting himself to you as the propitiate, to him as the propitiation. That's always going. But the goal is that you would walk in righteousness. So today, let's just close out with this. Let's say today, you are walking through this life, you've expressed belief, you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus, and there is sin in your life. What are the options for you right now? To take the things that we've learned, the first thing is a theological one, a belief, an understanding, a knowledge. That the full penalty for sin has been paid, and in that, when you put your faith in Jesus, you die to sin, and you are raised to walk in newness of life. So theologically speaking, as far as it goes with God, you have everything you need to live a godly life today. In fact, Peter says those very words in 2 Peter 1.3, that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. So theologically speaking, you are equipped to overcome sin in Christ. Doesn't matter how defeated you feel in your battle with sin or how much the struggle has been there, the theological reality is that you have what you need to overcome sin in your life today in Christ. So you start with the belief and knowledge and understanding of that. And then there's the battle of the will. And this is a huge battle. Right? You can make huge declarations about a diet, like I'm done with sugar and then chocolate chip cookie dough. Right? I am done with sugar and then Thrifty's ice cream. I'm done with sugar. You could do that. You could have a deep desire that even manifests in a promise that you fail at repeatedly, and this, this kind of happens. And Paul is trying to explain to us that there is a will component, a will component, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You are a participant in this. Don't be helpless when it comes to your sin. Don't be helpless when it comes to your sin. You are a participant in your personal sanctification and righteousness. Through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, you are called to participate. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't offer the members of your body to unrighteousness. Don't do it. 
He's giving you instructions on how to engage the, the world that we're in from a will point of view so that you can walk in righteousness and not in sinfulness. Okay? Next, if there is sin, John said a couple of things. He said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. And if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus, who's standing with the Father. And so there's a part of understanding the nature of grace and forgiveness when there is sin. So you are in sin, and you go to the Father. You confess your sin. You ask for forgiveness. You experience the gospel of grace, and you walk in righteousness. And the last piece, and this is just a, a summary of the New Testament. And I could take time to walk through this, but I won't, I won't this morning. But that we have a community of saints, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that exist to walk with each other in our collective pursuit of righteousness. This is the whole idea of stirring one another up to love and good works, iron sharpening iron, building each other up, in the way of Jesus, is a part of the life of the church. It's a, an incomplete church if we're not talking about our sinfulness and our brokenness and being able to stir each other up to righteous living. That's not the way of the church. The church that shows up and that says, I have sin and brokenness, but I'm not supposed to say anything about it, and I'm just going to live with it buried deep within me, is not the New Testament church. We see a different kind of way. This is why we talk about community. We do life in community. It's why we do community groups. It's why we would push so hard for this over and over and over because life together actually helps us walk in the way of Jesus. We are stirred to righteousness by each other. There's theology. There's the will. There's the practice of when we sin, what it means to confess and experience the gospel of grace, and then there's doing life together that helps stir us to a life of righteousness. The big picture of this is to say, I want to encourage you, number one, to not be satisfied in your sin, and number two, to not be defeated by your sin, because neither of those are the way that Jesus teaches us about how to do life walking in his way. Don't be satisfied in it. And don't be defeated by it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I want to say thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for um, being so clear and so available to us as we walk through this life. Lord, my, my hope, my prayer for today was to be helpful. That as people are seeking to walk with you, there's just this understanding of, of how you want to engage us in this life. Lord, I know so many here would say, I, I, I love God, I follow Jesus, and I struggle with sin, and I, just, I pray even as we worship, even as we take communion, Lord, that you would be meeting and ministering to them and showing them, I see you, I hear you, would you continue to reveal yourself to us
the gospel of grace, the call to righteousness. We want it, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.